0: Well, as Keith prayed, we will be in the book of Romans today, so you can open your Bibles there to chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17 this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to, again, uh, draw your attention to some resources that we have available to you in the Resource Center. Um, I I ordered more of the little commentaries that we are recommending for the first half of the book, because all but one of them are gone, uh, and they didn't come in on time for today, so uh, I'm hoping they'll be in next week, but there's a lot of other really good resources in there. If you like free stuff, there's even free stuff over there if you haven't been in it yet, Uh, so go and check out the Resource Center out by the cafe um, after the service and, and pick up some of those resources. Let's go ahead and just look at these uh, two verses here. Let's read over them and then pray again for the Spirit to, to lead us. So Paul says here in verse 16 of Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, whenever we come to your word, we want to come in a posture of humility, understanding that the truths that are contained here are not able to be understood or believed without your help. And that's what we want to acknowledge right now as we come to these two verses in Romans. And we want to plead with you and ask you to come and to help us to understand and to see and to believe that Christ may be be made great in our lives. We pray this in His name. Amen. So we began this series here in the book of Romans two weeks ago. Uh, And what we really saw, there was some introductory material as we are launching this uh, long series in the book of Romans. Uh, The first week, what we really saw was Paul begin his great letter with an emphasis on the gospel. We saw him unfold for us in broad strokes the origin, content, and purpose of the gospel. And Paul emphasizes the gospel right out of the gate so that we understand that this book is going to be all about the message of the gospel. He's intentionally focusing our eyes on the reality of the message of the gospel so that we would not miss what this book is all about. And then last week, Corey dove a little bit deeper into the purpose for why Paul would want to communicate the gospel to the church in Rome. And he showed us that Paul had desired to go on a missionary journey to Spain and that he was wanting to garner the support of the Roman church as he went And he also wanted to unify the church by presenting a consistent and unified message of the gospel to them. And all of this, of course, for the glory of God. Paul, most of all, wanted to bring glory to God in both of these things. And that was the the first 18 or 15 verses, rather, of of chapter 1. And now as we come to verse 16 and 17, what we see here is, Paul's first big transition in the book, where he's transitioning from his greetings and his opening to now the body of his letter. And that's what these two verses really comprise for us. And so what we see here, Paul aiming to do in these two transitionary verses is to present the theological theme for the body of his letter. So as we open these two verses up, that's ultimately what we want to see and what we will see. So as Paul begins his transition to the body of his letter, he does so first by expressing his complete confidence in the power of the gospel. And we see this in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, Paul states his uh, confidence in the gospel in a very unique way. He states it in a negative fashion. He says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel." This is a very strange way for him to speak about the confidence which he ha- with which he has in the message that he is proclaiming, and it leads us to ask, well, why does Paul feel the need to state that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Is there some reason why Paul might have been ashamed of the gospel, or why is he expressing himself in this way? I think that there's two things uh, that are realities that point to why Paul would would feel the need to say that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, The first is that Paul had a long list of opponents who sought to malign the gospel he preached among the Christian world at the time. If you're familiar with Paul's letters to the Galatians or to the Corinthians, he actually makes mention of these people who snuck into the church and began to talk badly about Paul and the gospel that he preached. So Paul would go and he would plant the church in Galatia the church in Corinth and preach to them the true gospel and then these false teachers, these opponents of Paul would sneak in and, and tell them, no, look, Paul had it wrong. And that's why we see on the occasion of Galatians and 1 Corinthians, Paul felt the need to write back to his church and say, look, you guys have moved away from the gospel. You need to return to what I first proclaimed to you. And although Paul had never been to the church in Rome, it's very possible that these opponents and this kind of bad reputation that Paul had gained could have spread into the church in Rome And so this this, uh, affirmation of Paul's boldness and confidence in the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel, might have been a subtle refute of the false claims of his opponents. And saying, although they say I should be ashamed of this, I'm not. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. But the second thing is also that the gospel message itself contains truths that are shameful and foolish in the eyes of the world. And this was definitely true in Paul's time, but I want to consider a couple of the ways that our world tells us that the gospel is foolish. Now, our world is much more secular than Paul's was, and so they would have had different things to quarrel with the message of the gospel. But but consider what the gospel says and how the world pushes back to it. The gospel says that we have failed spiritually, and we have failed badly. So badly, in fact, that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves so the gospel tells us how does the world push back to that well you have to first prove the fact that you're a spiritual being right we're not even spiritual beings we're just made up I mean the evolutionary process right we're just made up from uh, our ancestors and from from scum that developed over millions and millions of years we're not spiritual beings that's foolishness that's shameful right The gospel says that we are so wicked that only somebody dying for us could save us. Wait a second. You you can't tell me that I'm sinful. You can't tell me that I'm wrong. You can't decide that for me. I decide what's right and what's wrong. That's foolishness. That's silly. That's shameful, right? Have you ever heard anybody say something like that? The gospel proclaims that Jesus is the only way to God. And in the religious or spiritual part of the world in which we live in, when you talk about the ex- exclusivity of Jesus, you're, you better get ready for a fight, right? It's arrogant, isn't it? To proclaim that Jesus is the only way to God. You see, in the eyes of the world, much of what the gospel proclaims is foolish. And brothers and sisters, I have to ask you the question of how confident you are in the gospel. Do you, like Paul, express this uh, bravado in unashamed confidence in the gospel? Or when the world pushes back to the message that you believe, do you shrink back? Displaying that indeed you are not that confident in the gospel after all. Paul in the midst of personal opposition and the world's ridicule is doubling down on his confidence here. I'm unashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now it's right for us to ask if Paul is so unashamed of the gospel, where does he find this immense boldness and confidence in the gospel? Where does it stem from? Well, I think that first Paul's confidence in the gospel rests in what we saw back in verses 1 and 2. Remember how we saw that the gospel is a message from God? Paul's confidence in the gospel was rooted in the fact that he knew that this was not a man-made message, but was a message from God himself, that it had divine origins, and this would have caused Paul to be very bold about the gospel and ought to do the same for us. And remember how he demonstrated this by showing the consistency of the gospel from the Old Testament and what God proclaimed thereto, what he is proclaiming now in the New. We'll see a little bit more of that here as the text continues on. So Paul would have found his confidence in the fact that the message he was proclaiming he knew came from God and not from man but not only this we also see as verse 16 goes on that Paul says his confidence in the gospel rests in its power to save so what he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel why for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes Now, Paul not only saw the power of the gospel at work in the lives of those whom he preached to, as he goes out to unreached people groups and he's preaching to them the gospel and they're believing in Jesus and they're getting added to the church, Paul is actively seeing the gospel at work. He's actively seeing its transforming power. But more importantly... Paul saw the power of the gospel to change his own life. And I think that that's what gave him the most boldness in the proclamation of it, is because it changed him. Or if you were here last week, you remember that Corey read through Paul's conversion story in Acts. Acts. And we saw how Jesus appeared to him and how the gospel infiltrated the hardness of his heart and changed him. Changed him so radically, mind you, from one of the worst persecutors of the church to perhaps the greatest church planter and evangelist that history has ever known. That's a powerful message, to change somebody so hard-hearted, to make them a killer of the church, and transfer them into very much a creator and builder of the church. You see, this personal change through the gospel gave Paul immense boldness in its power to save. And we can't miss the principle that is being laid out here for us. We cannot have confidence in the power of the gospel if we have not experienced its power in our own lives. So church, have you experienced the power of the gospel in your own life? Have you experienced its power to change? Have you experienced the power of the gospel in relation to the removal of the guilt and shame for the things that you think and say and do? Are you still carrying around that baggage? Have you experienced the power of the gospel to create a peaceful and reconciled relationship between you and God? Do you sit here this morning confident that you have been changed by the gospel and therefore you are in right relationship with God, a relationship of peace and reconciliation? Have you seen the gospel come into your life and begin to change your desires, change the things you long for, change the way that you live your life, change the way that you prioritize what you're going to be about as a person in this world? Have you experienced the power of the gospel? It's transformative power. If you have not You cannot miss what Paul is going to go on to say here, that there is great power in the gospel, and that it can even change you this morning. Now, we cannot leave this verse, verse 16, without also considering what it means that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for really two reasons, It is the power of God for salvation because of what it says to us and because of who says it. So let's consider the first here. The gospel is the power of God because of what it says. David Peterson speaks to this reality as he commented on this verse in in one of his books. He says, the message of the gospel is powerful to save because it communicates the benefits of the saving acts of God in Christ to all those who believe. So Peterson rightly points out here that the gospel has power because of its content, because of what it communicates to us. It tells us about Jesus and the way to be made right with God through him. That's why it's powerful, because of what it tells us, the knowledge that it gives us. But Paul not only emphasizes here that the gospel is powerful because of its content, what it tells us, but it is also powerful because of who speaks it to us, that it comes from God. Another commentator, Charles Cranfield, speaks about this reality in this way. He says, Paul's thought here in this verse of the message of the gospel as being effective power Is to be understood in light of such Old Testament passages concerning God's Word as Genesis 1 3. Now, all Cranfield is really saying here is when we think about the gospel, the message of the gospel being uh, powerful in God's hands, all he wants us to do is to think about the way in which God speaks that message and, and think about other places where God's Word is active in Scripture and what it's accomplishing. And so let's look back here for a second at Genesis 1-3. What does it say about God's word and its power? This is what it says. And God said, spoke his word, let there be light. And what was there? Light, right? Right? It's showing God's powerful word being able to create something that previously did not exist, right? He's able to speak and it happens. Well, the gospel message is the word of God in a very similar way. You see, just as God's word created the world in the beginning, so too his word of the gospel creates within the sinner new life. It creates a spiritual reality that previously did not exist. Spiritual life. The gospel is powerful because of what it says and because of who says it. It's a powerful weapon in the hands of God to change and transform hearts. And Paul is showing us here that all of this together is what is building his confidence in the power of the gospel, in the message of the gospel. His confidence here is through the roof because he has seen and experienced its transforming power and because he knows it is God's word to man. And because it is God's word, it is powerful. So Paul here has begun his first major transition by proclaiming his unashamed confidence in the power of the gospel. And now as we move into verse 17, he reveals the theological theme that the rest of his letter will explore. So let's look here in verse 17. Let's read from the the beginning so that we get the flow. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the theme that Paul aims to unfold throughout the entirety of, le- of his letter is, uh, he's speaking of it here in relation to how the gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God. He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So we need to understand what this phrase, the righteousness of God, means if we're going to understand Paul's big theme for his letter. So what does it mean That in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, I want to say here before we jump into this uh, that when Paul uses the phrase the righteousness of God in the book of Romans and elsewhere in some of his other letters, he often uses it to mean different things. And I'm hoping that as we come to each different usage of it, that we will make that clear as we go along how he's using it differently. But what I wanna do here is just show you how I believe he's using it in this this verse and how it crafts the theme for the rest of his letter. So whenever you see the righteousness of God in Romans, don't necessarily think that it means what I'm saying it means here. You have gotta consider the context that's around it. So again, the question, what does it mean that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? I think it means this here. I think it means that the gospel reveals how God is able to make sinners righteous before Him. How God is able to make sinners righteous before Him. Now, this understanding of the righteousness of God tells us that the gospel reveals to us how God is making sinners righteous, how He is actively doing this. Now, how does the gospel flesh out this reality? Now just understand that if you get confused by this, that's okay because Paul's going to spend a lot of his letter unfolding the very realities that we're talking about here. So if you're like, that was too quick, you got to slow down, that's what the next, like, I don't know, six months are going to be about. So just hang in there, all right? How does the gospel flesh out this reality that God is making sinners righteous before him? So the gospel tells us that Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of his Father, and that as he was doing so, he was fulfilling all righteousness. We see this specifically in the baptism of Jesus by uh, John, right? John's like, why are you coming here to have me baptize you? You should be baptizing me. You don't have any sin. You don't need to be baptized, Jesus, And Jesus says, no, I don't need to be baptized because I'm sinful. I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he says there. And this righteousness that Jesus is obtaining as a man as he walks throughout in his obedient life on earth. It's this righteousness that is given by God to all who believe. The Bible talks about in a sense that Jesus had to, in a sense, accumulate positive righteousness by living in obedience to the law of God so that that righteousness could be given to us who trust in him. And it is on the basis of this gift of righteousness by God that we are declared to be just that before him, righteous and just, on the basis of what Christ has done and not on the basis of what we have done. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul speaks about this reality this way. He says, For our sake, he that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is showing here this beautiful and amazing exchange that happens When faith is put in Jesus, he takes our sin and we are given his righteousness. That's the reality that Paul is talking about here. And Paul goes on here to emphasize that this gift of God's righteousness is given to the sinner exclusively through faith and not by works of the law. He makes this clear by utilizing a specific phrase and then by quoting the Old Testament. Let's read verse 17 to see it here again. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here's the phrase, from faith for faith. As it is written, the Old Testament passage, the righteous shall live by faith. So I take this phrase, from faith for faith, to mean that this righteousness that is given to the sinner is given completely on the basis of faith. That from beginning to end, our right standing before God is always and forever on the basis of faith and not on the basis of what we have done. In other words... When God pronounces a sinner righteous before him, he is not considering their works in the least bit, but only who their faith is in and what he has done, what Christ has done. Now Paul supports this understanding that this righteousness is given by God on the basis of faith alone by quoting Habakkuk 2.4. He says, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now in this verse in Habakkuk, in the original context, uh, Habakkuk is contrasting a wicked person who is trusting in himself with a person who has both been made righteous by his faith and who is living the life of faith in God. And Paul is taking this quote from the Old Testament and inserting it here to establish that his gospel message of being made right with God on the basis of faith alone is consistent with what God has said in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, when you see this quote here, you should be remembering something that we talked about two weeks ago, right? How Paul, throughout his letter to the Romans, is going to continually root his gospel message in the realities of the Old Testament, to show us the consistency of our Bibles. To show us the consistency of the message of God from the Old Testament to the new. This is the first place that Paul does it. God is making sinners righteous before him by faith alone. And this is always the way that God has made sinners righteous before him, by faith alone. So these are the details here of Paul's theological theme. Now let's just state it succinctly, uh, and I wrote it down for you in your insert if you have it, um, so that you would remember it uh, as we go throughout the rest of this series. So here's the theme as I understand it. The gospel is a revelation of how God is able to make sinners righteous before him by faith alone. The gospel is a revelation of how God is able to make sinners righteous before him by faith alone. And this is what Paul goes on to unfold for us throughout his letter. So having seen here the theological theme of Paul's letter, let's consider the big picture and how this theme gets fleshed out in the book as a whole. We'll do a little bit of a brief theological overview before we conclude our time. Uh, if you appreciate uh, these banners that are up here, uh, there was a lot of hard work uh, put into them, both in the design and in the uh, hanging them. I was I bore witness to that throughout the week. Um, we have a lot of great people who are at work on, on this project. And if these things confuse you, I'm about to help you understand them. <laughs> so this is the way that we see the book of Romans flowing as a whole. We see it broken up into four major sections and so what we really need to ask ourselves as we look at these is how does the book of Romans present how God is able to make sinners righteous before him on the basis of faith alone throughout the totality of his letter so we see this beginning actually we'll see it begin next Sunday uh, as we enter into verse 18 and beyond of chapter 1 where we see Paul begin this big section on justification which takes us through most of chapter five. And we see here that Paul demonstrates the sinfulness and the unrighteousness of mankind. It's pretty, it's pretty dismal reading, at least for humans, because it really reveals to us the depth of our sinfulness for about three chapters. But that makes the gospel, the good news, really, really sweet when we understand how sinful we are. And so Paul with introducing the righteousness of God here is going to move right into how man is unrighteous and stands in need of this gift of righteousness from God. And then in the course of those same chapters 1 through 5, Paul is then going to present how justification or this gift of righteousness can be given to us through faith in Jesus. And this is the gospel's application for the sinner. It's the gospel's application for the unbeliever, the one who does not believe in Jesus, showing them that they desperately stand in need of him and showing them what Jesus has done to change that. Paul then makes a transition in chapters 6 through 8 to a section on sanctification, on how the gospel applies to the life of the believer. In these chapters, Paul really calls us to live in light of the righteous and just status that we have been given by God in Christ. He says that just because God proclaims you and declares you to be righteous and just in his sight, doesn't mean that you actually live that way. You have to go on a process and a journey of sanctification And what he seeks to do is he seeks to apply gospel truths and realities to our lives, the lives of believers, so that we might walk in greater obedience to him. And in these first two sections, if you recall what we talked about the purpose of the gospel being two weeks ago, to bring about what? The obedience of faith among those who do not believe and among those who do believe. We see the first half of Romans really bringing together this idea of the gospel's application for both the sinner and the saint. And then as Paul moves into chapters 9 through 11, our third banner here, he really begins to defend God's handling of the Jewish people in order to justify the gospel proclamation to all people indiscriminately. He brings up some charges and accusations from the Jewish people and deals with them there, ultimately showing how the gospel is meant to be proclaimed to all people regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their social status, regardless of anything. The gospel is for all. And then in the last section of Romans 12 through 16, we see this uh, idea of transformation and what Paul really goes on to do is he, he takes all of the gospel truths that he's presented in chapters 1 through 11, and then he begins to take those truths and apply them to the life of the church and us as Christians and the way that we view the world around us. That the gospel is not just about our own personal lives and the way that we're growing in holiness, but the gospel is for life that it transforms and changes the way in which we see and interact with the world around us. And so in those last chapters of Romans, what we're going to see Paul do is talk about what the church is supposed to be doing and how the gospel has an impact on what the, ch- the way the church is supposed to function. We're going to see him talk about how believers ought to interact with each other. We're going to see him talk about how we ought to interact with the government, with the world around us, right? Right? that the gospel has something to say about the way we see the world and the way that we interact with it. And so really what Paul is doing is seeking to lay out his gospel and to apply it both to the individual Christian and to the world around us and the way that we interact with it. Corey, last week, challenged us to, in one sitting, sit and read the book of Romans from beginning to end. Has anybody done that yet? I see like one and a half hands. I'm not sure what the half hand was for. Maybe they weren't super confident if they made it all the way through. I don't know. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to do that this week. It doesn't take that long. Sit down and read it to your kids. Uh, it would be really, really helpful for you to see this flow, to see how the book of Romans is ultimately unfolding this theme that we have seen here in Paul. Uh, listen, guys, we're going to be in this for a while, so it's going to benefit you to get, get a good, better picture of what's going on here. And so if you want this study to be meaningful for you, get the big picture. Go home and read it today. It will be very, very helpful to you, uh, I'll tell you this, it was, it was actually, um, when we were in the hospital with Zeke, uh, it, was, it was a little bit uh, strenuous, um, but also we just got a lot of time to chill and hang out with him, and he just kind of slept. And I took to reading some scripture to him, and in preparation for our series in Romans, I just read through the book of Romans to him. And man, it was so illuminating to see, like, oh man, this really is really helpful to be able to see the big picture flow And I mean, he can quote it word for word now, so, um, no, I'm just kidding. Praying that God does his work through getting the scriptures in him. So this is the big picture overview. These banners are going to be really helpful for us because when we get out of this text here this morning, we're going to dive down into the weeds, okay? And it's going to be really helpful for us to remember where we are in the spectrum of what Paul is seeking to communicate. And these banners are going to keep us focused on that big picture reality. Okay, as we conclude here, I don't want us to miss what Paul is really emphasizing in these two verses. Again, he is showing us his complete confidence in the power of the gospel. Because it is the powerful message of a God who is able to make sinners righteous before him And this is truly the heart of the gospel. How God is reconciling man to himself. And this is what Paul is going to unfold. And I would just leave you again with the question that I asked you before. How confident are you in this gospel? I think that's something very important for us to consider I think that Paul was confident in the gospel partially because he knew it so well. And if you sit here today and you're like, you were talking about justification and God giving uh, his righteousness to people, I didn't understand any of that. You're probably not very confident in the gospel. But there's good news. We're gonna walk through Romans And I'm praying, we are praying that we all at the end of this come out saying in an unashamed manner that we are confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we want and that's what we need. So let's pray that the Spirit begins at work in us now. Father, thank you for the beautiful message of the gospel and its power to save. Because it is a message that tells us about the glories of Jesus and what he has done and reveals to us the depth of our need for him. But it is also powerful because you speak it. And with your word comes power. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak the gospel into our hearts creating deeper confidence in you and in this message and creating greater depths of holiness and obedience to you as you increase our faith through seeing the gospel more clearly. Lord, give us the strength that we need. Give us the boldness that we need to not only live for you, but to proclaim this gospel to those who need it. Work in us in this way as we continue throughout this series. Create within us this confidence. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.